As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everyone, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's Americans Abroad Weekend Recap, I'm joined by a man whose relentless enthusiasm for Brendan Aronson is finally paying (laughs) off and maybe rubbing off. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. It's definitely rubbing off based off of a text that you sent me earlier about Brendan Aronson. Do you want to do you want to tell the people about that? I mean, it was mostly just a series of expletives about how exciting <laughs> I think he is and how uh, good he's going to be. I had a moment where I like, like, not that I am one to praise uh, giant multinational conglomerates, but I had a moment of like, I feel like we may come back and think that Red Bull have done us a service here because it does feel like this is a pipeline for getting youngsters to Europe uh, and then maybe ideally American youngsters getting the minutes at a, at a good level and then selling them on for even more money because Aronson is doing things in Austria. Not trying to jump straight to that, but uh, yes, I enjoyed pretty much everything I saw from him this weekend. Man, yeah, I'm not necessarily one to praise giant conglomerates either, but that that pipeline is doing things. Tyler Adams, Jesse Marsh, Brendan Aronson, it looks like Caden Clark's going to be in that list as well, moving to Leipzig oh, yeah. maybe after the season ends in Major, in Major League Soccer. Man, that that pipeline is already paying off, mm-hmm. and and the players and coaches that are in that pipeline from an American side of things are doing some fun stuff, Taylor. They certainly are. We've got uh, six Americans, specifically, we're going to be talking about, most of whom did fun stuff this weekend. Uh, that is for this week. Joe, being the uh, ever-qualified scheduler that he is, reminded me we have Olympic qualifying coming up, which is the thing we definitely want to be covering. So that's uh, something to look forward to next week. Joe and I will try to do some previews and reviews of every U.S. game so we know what's going on. Hopefully in a happy way and not in a uh like mournful sad we didn't qualify yet again way let's uh let's keep those fingers crossed yeah my my fingers and yep all my toes are crossed now as well so so we're good uh joe which player would you like to start with would you like to start or would you prefer if i start you know what taylor i feel like i usually start because you're the courteous gentleman that allows me to go first why don't you go first today I will, and I will start us off by talking about uh, a Mr. Daryl DK. Joe, uh, Joe, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah, sorry, Daryl. Uh, yeah, no, you should write no, that down. Not, not our <laughs> Uh He is a man who, once again, I think was brought to my attention by you when you were discussing him on MLS Assist way back when, but now we have him uh, with Barnsley in the championship, Barnsley getting a 1-0 win this past weekend, and that one goal courtesy of Daryl DK. Uh, uh, my friend, uh, who I've mentioned previously, who's a Huddersfield fan, who has slowly come around to Dwayne Holmes, messaged me that his friend, who is a Barnsley fan, is already demanding that they trigger the £20 million release clause. I don't know if that will end up being the amount they would have to pay, but I do understand why Barnsley fans are very excited to have Daryl DK in the team. That goal, Taylor. Oh my goodness. That's Mm -hmm. one of the best goals I've seen, not just by an American, but that's one of the best goals I've seen scored by any player this season. And I'm sure I've missed a lot Mm -hmm. of good ones and all that, blah, blah, blah. This goal is so good. Daryl DK is at almost an impossible angle. It's a FIFA uh, on, goal. It, it looks like a, a goal FIFA from goal. FIFA. 
It's the yeah. kind of goal that I would have scored on against me in FIFA yeah, and then be extremely exactly. angry because that would never exactly. happen in real life. Exactly. <laughs> but it did. It did happen. So I guess I can't be angry now when, when my friend scores a goal like that against there me because go. it does happen. And it happens if you're Daryl DK scoring that ridiculous shot for Barnsley. I mean, it is. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. I wish we could do it justice with our words, but I, mm-hmm. I just don't think we'll be able to. We, I don't think we would, uh, and but we can try very quickly just to say that it's basically <laughs> okay. he's played in. It's at a very wide angle, and I think the goalkeeper even thinks, okay, no shot is coming. And then the way he just roofs it near post, but you don't see that sort of like, oh, wow, I can't believe I did that reaction. It, it is the sort of calm jog away and then the dance celebration of a player who meant to do that. Maybe he didn't mean to hit it that perfectly, that inch perfectly, but certainly an intentional strike. And I think it stood out to me all the more because of what was asked of him in this game. I, from everything I saw, this was essentially 90 minutes of players looking up in the air because it was <laughs> long ball versus long ball. It was constant balls, not even over the top, but just hoofed long, almost always for Daryl DK. And I'm not exaggerating to say that almost always he wins it or at least creates confusion after the initial header because sometimes he brings it down, sometimes he flicks it on, sometimes the defender wins it, but it's sort of an erratic win and it goes to a Barnsley player, it goes out of bounds. But Daryl DK spent... As long as he was on the pitch, I cannot remember if he was subbed out late, but as long as he was on that field, he was fighting for every single ball and did really well with it. And especially so when you realize that he never loses his cool, he never gets into sort of physical altercations, which you would expect of a player who spends 90 minutes fighting and grappling and getting kicked and getting knocked around. He keeps his cool. He he fights for everything. And if he does foul somebody, he kind of pops up. Even when a player gets in his face or gets angry, he just kind of continues on his way. It really stood out to me as a player that was just locked in, focused. And uh, yeah, I am very much more hyped on Daryl DK than I was last week. Daryl DK is, is technical in a lot of ways. He has some decent yep. foot skills. I think that's still developing. But I think the biggest reason why Barnsley went out and got him is because of his physicality. He mm-hmm. really is so strong and hard to move when the balls are coming down, when everybody's looking up in the air, waiting for the ball to drop. Daryl DK doesn't just wait. He actually moves people out of the way so yep. that then he can get the ball. I mean, when I, when I play basketball, what you're taught to do when you rebound is as the ball is coming off the rim or, or, you know, coming off the backboard or whatever it is, don't just wait, move, move, box out the opposing player, move that guy out of the way so that you can then get the ball and you have that space around you. Daryl DK applies that idea to bringing down long balls and he does, he does it pretty yeah. well. He's not perfect at it, but he does that consistently and moves people out of the way. And then when he is on the ball in the attack, I don't know how valuable of a skill this is, but it, it seems like it's valuable because it popped up in this goal. He hits the ball harder than almost any player I've ever seen, right? I mean, yeah. the way he kicks the ball on his goal in this game, and I, I remember seeing this in Orlando as well last year, he hits the ball so hard. I already can't imagine what it's like to be a goalkeeper and face you know, professional soccer player shots all day in training and then in games as well. But Daryl DK's shots are on a different level in terms of how yeah. hard he can kick the ball at the goal. And... Man, just just what he's able to do on the field from a physical standpoint, and if you can combine that with continuing to refine his technical ability and all of those things, his understanding of space offensively and defensively, he is going to be a very, very good player one day. That's a big that's a big if as far as the the rest of his game developing, but the building blocks are definitely there. Agreed. Uh, and and when you say that you gotta like box people out, knock people off the ball, uh, Birmingham tried to do that to him, and instead, I think I sent you that one clip of he fights off one player who's desperately trying to hold on to him to fight for a long ball to then challenge another player and beat that player for the yeah. ball. So he uh he's a force that can't be stopped. But again, he's a force that also doesn't get preoccupied with uh, like little moments. There's one in the 68th minute. Uh Barnsley have a corner. It's played short. Uh One of the Barnsley players is is. Taken out, tackled, depends on your perspective, but the referee would say legal tackle. Most of the Barnsley team stopped to complain. Daryl DK just sprints 15 yards and wins the ball back. He gets a little poke tackle in, Barnsley, Barnsley regained possession, and then all of those kind of concerned players who wanted the call go right back to playing their game. But I enjoyed that in that moment, they're all kind of complaining. He is just about that work. And it, it stood out to me for that reason, but also his ability to fight for everything. The goal itself, it was just a great performance. And I went into it thinking, we know that Greg Berhalter is okay with a false nine. We know he wants a mobile forward. We know he wants somebody who can be on the ball, but can vacate space and open up for everybody else. Does Daryl DK fit in? And I think 
Still not, you know, he's not the same forward as Jesus Ferreira, and I don't think he needs to be, nor is that maybe the end goal of his career. But I think he does a lot of things that if Greg Berhalter wants a player who can be that physical hold-up presence, who can challenge for stuff in the air if the U.S. is chasing, and can just sort of be locked in and pressing and running at people and causing confusion, th- there is room for Daryl DK on that roster, in my opinion. I think Daryl DK is just in a unique in a unique situation right now because he's not a Jesus Ferreira. He's not even... He's not even a Josie Altador. I think physically those two players have similar profiles. Yeah. But Daryl DK is much less of a, I'm going to drop in and connect. Josie Altador always wants to come back to That's the true. ball yeah. and get touches. When it was Josie Altador and Sebastian Giovinco up top for Greg Vanny in Toronto a couple of years ago, or I don't remember how long ago that is now. When it was those two guys up top, you'd think it would be Giovinco, the smaller you know guy coming back into midfield, but it, it wasn't so much. It was mostly Altador dropping in and getting touches Daryl DK doesn't do that as much. And yeah, right now, especially because Barnsley doesn't have that as a part of their attacking yeah. plan at all. But even with Orlando, it wasn't really his job a lot of times to drop in and make plays happen in midfield. So DK is much more of a, I'm going to stay high, I'm going to knock the ball down, and then I'm going to get into the box or get around the box and make things happen right there. That's a different type of forward, I think, than than almost anybody else in the pool right now which does give him a unique opportunity to potentially be on a roster simply because he's different than Zardes. He's different than Jesus Ferreira. He's different than Josie Altidore. That's such an, it's such an interesting spot for him to be in right now, and I think it could actually pay off really well for him. So let me ask you this then, in, in a hypothetical scenario. Let's say Barnsley don't get promoted. Uh, Daryl DK has the option. Uh, he's got a couple different options. Let's say he can go back to Orlando, he can stay with Barnsley, or he gets offers from two Premier League clubs, one of whom is going to kind of want him to just be that leading the line, battle for everything, we're going to go long ball, Newcastle basically. Uh, or uh, he gets another offer from a club who are going to want him to work on that dropping in, linking up play, being more on the ball type of forward. Which of the four scenarios would you most like? A team that wants him to drop in and do the Josie work? A team that wants him to continue to do what he's doing at a higher level? Stay with Barnsley or go back to Orlando City? That's funny. I was going to ask you a very similar question. My vote is is not back to Orlando, although as a frequent watcher of MLS, I'd love that. Mm-hmm. I think my my vote for him would be to go to that Premier League team who actually wants him to develop skills that maybe he doesn't quite have yet. To work on areas yeah. of his game that he's not already super good at. Yeah, it's fun to see him at Barnsley doing all the physical stuff, but it's also not fun to watch Barnsley. And that I wonder true. what the limit is. How much <laughs> How much can you help your own game by playing in a team that plays to your strengths? Maybe that's a silly yeah. question, but I, I almost wonder if there's a limit there and if Daryl DK would be better served development-wise to go to a team where, yeah, he might have to fight for minutes more than he is for Barnsley right now, but to go to a team that emphasizes different things in training, that focuses on playing with the ball like Greg Berhalter's men's national team does. Because that's the biggest difference, as I see it right now, mm-hmm. with, with Daryl DK and, and the difference between Barnsley and the U.S. men's national team versus a team that actually wants to play. Maybe it's Brighton or something like that, where they play with the ball. It's hard because Daryl DK is not getting the same type of reps that he'll be getting with the U.S. right now when he's at Barnsley. So I want to see him play at a team. that Honestly, that could even be Orlando if worst comes to worst, and that's not even a bad situation. But I want to see him... Uh, on a team with a manager who actually wants to play, you know? Yeah, all right. I can, I can buy into that. I think as long as that's actually the goal, and it sort of is then, like, it's a project. We're bringing him in to see if he can develop that way, and it's not the, what I always go to, again, with the Josie comparison, would be Sunderland, where it's like, we want you to do this specific thing, and I guess there it is, sort of lead the line, be yeah. physical up top. But, like, we're not actually going to put people around you to help you develop. We're not going to give you the time to learn those skills. We're just going to throw you in there and hope you do it. If they're actually helping him learn how to do that, then I'm into it. Otherwise, I might prefer him uh, maybe moving to a Premier League club that are just going to play the way he wants to play, or not necessarily the way he wants to play, but he'll continue to do what he wants to do and, and is very good at so far at a higher level. Uh, I think really, what, I guess what I'm getting at is really anything I'm sort of excited by, except as as bad as it sounds, and I apologize in advance for this, like Barnsley now are in the playoff spots. They've won five straight. If they can keep that alive, you never know what will happen. I don't know if Barnsley uh, getting promoted would be the best thing for him because they play a lot of Route 1, and I don't know if that will work as well in the Premier League and how successful they would be. So that could be another Sunderland situation, but you never know. Maybe they'll they'll uh, automatically go up and it will all be fine and I'm just worrying about nothing. No, I don't think you're worrying about nothing. Barnsley, <laughs> uh, listeners, if you haven't watched Barnsley, 
you're lucky and you're doing a good job in life. They don't they don't play soccer really as we know it in 2021. They do really play Route One. I mean, is yeah. there something even even more remedial than Route One? I don't. Maybe maybe I'm being too harsher, but yeah, I think you're you, ex- you express that well, Taylor. I think they could struggle in the Premier League trying to do the same thing that they're doing now. Uh, which could make it yeah. a difficult spot for DK to be in next year. But who knows, honestly. I like the fact that we can have this discussion. We don't know the answer. We don't As know do what I. the best spot is for Daryl DK. But, man, if you told me that his loan was going to go like this back when mm-hmm. we first talked about it in, what was that, yeah. January, early early February, the very beginning, right after the transfer window closed, if you told me Daryl DK is going to come, he's going to work on things that he's already good at, that's fine, and he's going to score some goals, and he's going to have opportunities for us to watch him play at a at a high-ish level over and over again and get regular minutes week in and week out, I'd say that's a successful loan. So whatever happens kind of after this is almost gravy right now. All right. Well, that feels like a good point to end our Daryl DK conversation. Uh, Joe, which player are we going to talk about next? Let's talk about Serginho Dest, who started in FC Barcelona's 2-0 win over Osasuna in La Liga on Saturday Taylor Dest is is still in that right wing back spot, or at mm. least he was for some of this game you talked about last week and last time we talked about how Dest is playing as a right wing back in Ronald Koeman's newfound appreciated 3-5-2, right? So it was, I think when we talked about it, it was Dembele and Messi up top. This time it was Griezmann and Messi up top, so mm-hmm. Dembele was on the bench. He comes off the bench later in the second half. He, he comes on at halftime, actually, Dembele and plays as a right winger, and the shape changes, actually, into more of a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1. And so Dest actually played two roles in this game. He started as a right wing back and then shifted to a right back. And I actually thought that was quite fun because we got to see some different sides of his game that I don't think we would have seen if we'd just see him play right wing back or just as a right back. Yeah, I I was confused about that at first in the second half because I was like, oh, now they are giving him some support outside because I thought that was in response to, I would say, a deficiency in their system that we can talk about. Uh, But then, yes, realizing that, oh, no, they're just in a back four. That made much more sense in Barca (laughs) kind of going to their usual default system. Uh, I watched this game as well. And what I continue to be... Not alarmed by because I'm not a Barca fan, uh, but sort of I have a an, an another set of notes about is that Wendest is that right wing back, when especially when it's Griezmann and Messi. Griezmann, who I think sort of naturally moves to the left side, Messi when he stays central, stays central. But that means you've got nobody on that right hand side except for Serginho Dest. And what I kept seeing was when he would get the ball wide, he really didn't have anybody around him, especially in a more attacking position within like 25 yards or so. So a lot of times it was Dest sort of having to hold the ball or dumping it back to one of the center backs or trying to take somebody on. And he does do a little bit more of that this week, but I still see him being just a little bit isolated out on that right-hand side. And it doesn't feel like they want him to be the lone attacker. It doesn't feel like it's an Ashraf Hakimi. We're just giving you the whole side, go do stuff thing. It feels a bit more like, yeah, we're just going to kind of lock down that right-hand side. We know we've got defensive quality there and we'll focus our our efforts through the middle and on the opposite side of the field. So the second half when it is a bit more balanced and he does have somebody ahead of him I think it it looked a little bit better in terms of his overlapping play and the way he would link up uh, but I, I think it gave him slightly less responsibility at the same time I don't know where I fall on this thing I think all of your reasoning there Taylor about him being isolated on the right side and maybe how that's not entirely planned by Barcelona or or that's not a focal point of their attacking structure I don't think I disagree with that I think I think I agree but I guess when I was watching this game, I see Dest as that right wing back. He's got no one else on his side, as you've explained really well. Mm-hmm. It's, that's very true. He would be very isolated a lot in that first half. He was very isolated a lot in that first half. But if I'm Serginho Dest, I kind of like that. I kind of want that because Serginho Dest and his game is built off of 1v1 ability, I think. Or maybe it used to be. Maybe that's not as true now. But back when he was with Ajax in that youth system and coming up even to the first team... Dest would isolate somebody on the wing. He'd be on the left or he'd be on the right or he'd be deeper as a fullback or whatever, a wingback. It doesn't matter. Dest would want to go at players 1v1. And so I almost interpreted this game and this system for Dest as Ronald Koeman saying, okay, we know Serginho likes to do things 1v1. We're going to try to overload the center and that's going to be our primary attacking method and using Pedri and Frankie de Jong and using Sergio Busquets and Messi and Griezmann and all of those players. We're going to have an overload in midfield But then we also want to have that outlet on the right side where we can play the ball out wide to that side and say, okay, Serginho, do your thing. This is what your brand is built off of, that that 1v1 skill, that 1v1 ability that you have. Go do stuff. 
Des didn't do a fantastic job in this game. He didn't have, you know, 1v1 win after 1v1 win and just kind of breaking down that opposing left wing back or left back for Osasuna. He didn't do that every single time. But I do like that he's being put in situations. Maybe it's by accident. Maybe it's intentional. I don't know. I'm not Ronald Koeman. I do kind of like that in this 3-5-2 that Koeman seems to be going with, they played it in their last three games. I like the fact that Dest has a chance to go 1v1 and continue to work on that part of his game because I think with the U.S. men's national team, Dest's 1v1 ability can be a massive boost to their attack. I think that's one of their strongest attacking methods is clearing out that right side a little bit or at least giving Dest the wing and saying, okay, Serginho, go 1v1 and make something happen. So the connection's not quite there yet, but I actually think from a U.S. men's national team perspective, the 3-5-2 in Barcelona's lack of real structure on that right side could actually work out. But do you feel like he is like taking people on? Do you feel like that is a thing that he's been tasked with doing? Because to me, I saw it a few times. I saw it a couple times when he would try to get to the end line and cut it back. But I didn't see that sort of 1v1, stand him up, try to get around him approach. And I'm wondering if that's a thing you think we will see more of, or maybe if I just watch the wrong moments. It's hard to say like what's a lot and what's not a lot. But I think I saw it at least three or four times where Dest is going 1v1. And then even more times where he's trying to get in behind off the ball. I think one of Barcelona's focal points and one of their their main attacking methods on that right side was trying to get Dest in behind and have him run off the ball, beat that offside trap from Osasuna, and then get in behind and get on the ball and then put a cross in. It didn't happen, you know, 10, 15 times, but it happened a few times where he was trying to get in behind or just go 1v1. I'd say, I'd say three, four, five, six times between those things combined. But yeah, I mean, still not their main attacking goal because you have Messi on the field and you have all those players in the middle. But as far as the attacks on the right side go, I do think that was certainly something that they were trying to take advantage of in terms of Osasuna's, the left side of Osasuna's defense. I think the other reason why it stands out to me, though, is because the first goal is Jordi Alba making that exact run. Lionel Messi threading that, like putting that ball in perfectly. Alba brings it down, goes at the goal, scores, I believe, near post again. Takes a page out of Daryl DK's book. He should have given him credit. Uh, (laughs) But I I sort of see that run from Jordi Alba. And then I I was wondering if we were going to see more of that from Dest on the opposite side. And I guess I didn't feel like we did see those sort of balls in behind, those sort of sneaky runs that get to the back post. Um, So maybe that's a thing that I'll just have to keep an eye on and see if we do see more of it as he gets more comfortable with that position because I also think sometimes it looks as though he is a fullback who's been told hey you need to be a fullback first and an attacker second and he has prioritized that defensive development of his game over taking people on and being an attacking player and now he's being given license to get forward and to try some things and I wonder if maybe it's just going to take a little bit of time for him to fully embrace this is part of my game now I don't just have to worry about the defensive side. Yeah, and we're going to see Barcelona as a whole get more comfortable in that 3-5-2, I assume, over the rest of the season, or as long as Ronald Koeman wants to use that shape. They're still new to it. They haven't used it much at all this season before the last couple games. So I don't think Dest is alone in trying to get acclimated to that system. Quickly, I do want to highlight uh, highlight excuse me, a couple moments from Dest, not on the ball, but actually his defensive work. We've talked about Dest's defensive ability a lot in the past, and I think we're going to keep talking about it Because even if Dest isn't going 1v1 and winning every single one of those duels or isn't getting to the end line and putting in good cutbacks or whatever, we're still confident, I think, in his offensive game. That's one of his better things, even if we don't always see it for Barcelona. Defensively, we think we know some things, but we don't really know a lot of things about that side of his game yet. In this game, in the 64th minute, Dest is is far on the right side of the field. Barcelona are in the attacking half, and they lose the ball. Busquets misplays a pass. Osasuna then get on the ball and start to counterattack, and Dest is on that far side, and he shows a great reaction. And this was really encouraging for me to watch. He sees that the, the ball is turned over, and immediately he swivels his hips, turns, runs back, tracks a runner, stays patient, stays with the runner, and actually ends up winning the ball back and recycling possession for Barcelona. When I watch moments like that from Dest, I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy can be an asset in counterpressing or can be an asset in defense. And then, Taylor, one minute later, I'm just as confused as maybe I was beforehand. Because then, one minute, literally, one minute later in this game, in the 65th minute, Barcelona are in their defensive shape, and Dest steps high to to step forward to an attacking player. He doesn't win the ball, which is fine, because the the attacking player just one-touched it wide, and and Dest kind of did his job in that moment. But then he turns off. He doesn't show that same reaction that he showed just 60 seconds before. And then he gets beaten in behind. Dembele doesn't help, but that, that shouldn't be a surprise after that PSG drubbing that Barca had. Dembele's not going to help out a lot defensively. 
and Dest gets beaten. They, they play the ball behind him into the box, and Jordi Alba has to cut out the danger in Barcelona's own box. And so Dest's defensive game, for me, is still a question mark. He had some good moments in this game. He had some bad moments in this game where I think he lapsed a little bit or had a little bit of a lapse in his thinking. I still think the defensive side of Sergio Dest's game is going to be something that we have to monitor because I just don't know exactly where we stand on it at this point. Final question about Dest, and then uh, we'll keep moving. Uh, is like, do you give him any credit, or do you give him any slack for the formation change at halftime that he does go from being a right wing back to more of a right fullback and having to adjust on the fly to basically being asked to do an entirely different assignment? You're not like give it as much license. You don't have as much cover. So does that explain away some of those mistakes? Maybe I don't. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't mm-hmm. think so. He knows how to defend as a right back, and he knows how Barcelona want to defend in kind of their man zone hybrid system. It requires him to step high sometimes, but it also requires him to turn and track back other times as well. I honestly think it's more of just a mental lapse where he's not as focused on the defensive side of things, and I imagine that'll change over time. But it didn't change in this game. All right. Any other Sergio Des points before we move on? I'm good, Taylor. All right, then we will be back with more Americans Abroad in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We are back and we're going to talk about Josh Sargent, another goal scoring American this past weekend, uh, starting at right wing in a 3-4-3 for Werder Bremen in their 1-1 draw with FC Köln. Uh, he gets the header. He gets the goal. Unfortunately, Werder Bremen do not get the win. But I do think this was a... A strong performance from Josh Sargent. I'm not going to say a great performance from Josh Sargent because I think there were obvious things to be improved upon. But I think anytime you score a goal, you play, I think, 86 minutes and are one of your team's most important players. It's got to be a positive. That's that's my takeaway from this game, Joe. I just love that Josh Sargent scored in back-to-back games yep. for to Bremen. That hasn't mm-hmm. happened at all this season, as far as I can remember. Him getting on the score sheet yeah. last week and then doing it again this week against Colin. I mean, this is... This is good. This is positive. This is what you want from a striker. Last week, we saw a goal that came from a more repeatable action. This week, we kind of see the same thing. He's fading a little bit off of a marker inside the box, and he creates a little bit of separation for himself. And then he gets a header. These are the types of things you want your striker to be doing. And I'm just glad we're seeing Werder Bremen get into the attack maybe a little bit more, or at least them being more effective when they are in the attack. Yeah, and I think it's a credit to Josh Sargent that, uh, like recognizing he's being tracked by, um, uh, Jorge Mede, uh, who I think does the thing of like keeps checking his position, keeps checking his position, make sure he knows where Josh Sargent is, but gets himself into the unfortunate scenario of then looks back at the ball just as it's being crossed. And I think the natural defender instinct is to face up to it and then try to meet in the air. But in so doing, he sort of holds his ground, ball goes over his head, and now Josh Sargent has drifted into an open position. It's a good header. Uh, but it's good, it's good slash better movement from Josh Sargent. Uh, and I, and I, and so obviously I enjoy the scoring of the goal, but I also enjoy everything else we saw from him because that goal comes from him then being the center, center forward. Uh, when Fulkrug comes off, uh, Leonardo Bittencourt comes on in the 57th minute. Sargent goes back up to that kind of number nine spot and that is where he scores. But prior to that, on that right wing, I saw a lot of defensive work from Josh Sargent. Not all of it like, a natural defender doing defensive work, uh, but enough work and the way he defended that it felt very similar to me to a player who has spent 
all season having the ball lumped into their general direction and getting kicked and knocked around and shoved over. And now he gets uh, an opportunity to give some back. And that's sort of the way Josh Sargent defends. It's very physical going into the 50-50 challenge. He does not mind throwing his hips into the ball and knocking somebody over. Uh, I, I liked that defensive work rate. His positioning wasn't always my favorite thing, though. And that's a thing, Joe, I think we've kind of talked about previously. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, especially when when Josh Sargent's not playing the entirety of this game in a position mm-hmm. he knows super well, I think there's definitely room for him to improve in that regard. Right, because basically what I saw in this one was they're in that 3-4-3, as I said. When uh, they're dropping into a somewhat more defensive shape, he is tasked with a couple different responsibilities because the right wing back does pretty pretty quickly drop in and it becomes a back five. Sargent tends to stay further forward, and now you've got 30, 40 yards of space that he has to police. And I think he tends to do that from a more interior position. I think they're trying to force their opponent out wide, then they can apply some lateral pressure. But what that means, I think, for him is sometimes he has to advance on one of the center backs who then can play it outside to that left back. And if Josh Sargent doesn't cut that angle off, if that ball goes by him, now he's got 20 yards maybe to make up on a player who's already advancing into space that is pretty wide open because that right wing back has dropped in and is more of a fullback at that spot. And that was the thing that happened at least three times in the opening 15 or 20 minutes was that he would go to pressure that that kind of uh, center back, the left center back, or even sometimes it was the left back and a central midfielder had slid over. He would go to press and they would be bypassed pretty quickly by that pass. And now he has to really hustle to get back into a good defensive position, which to his credit, he does. But I think if he maybe learns those angles a little bit more, works on them, gets the patterns down and maybe approaches from a yard or two wider, I think it cuts out that pass or at least makes that pass a riskier proposition and probably forces more just sort of direct balls, long clearances instead of quick passes that transition into counterattacks. It's such a hard job, right? Defending yep. as one of those narrow forwards in a 3-4-3 that then becomes kind of a 5-4-1 because your job is to try to funnel the ball wide, which you explained really well. And then your job is then to be the wide defender. So you have yep. to move and change your angles and drop back and do all these things. Josh Sargent, despite the fact that he is playing as kind of a, a right winger, or at least he has been for stretches of the last couple of games for Werder Bremen, he's not a right winger. That's not his long-term position. I think even even Werder Bremen's coaching staff would agree with that. And, and Sargent's just being played right there, I would imagine, because he has the the energy and he has the willingness and the pressing ability to play at that spot and to be an asset defensively. But he's learning that role, and it's going to take time. I love that analysis you brought of his angles, if he can change his pursuit angles slightly and just tweak them in a very small way, that could make his life a lot easier and could make Werder Bremen's lives a lot easier as they they move and defend and transition from attack to defense and do all of that. I think I think Josh Sargent is actually a pretty good fit at that spot for Werder Bremen, mm-hmm. not just because he's scoring goals. And even though even though some of those goals might be after he's moved positions and, and whatever. Don't but care. I, I, think, <laughs> yeah. I think he fits at that spot pretty well. It won't surprise me if we see more of him there. And I bet I bet we're going to see him improve those angles and become even more of a defensive asset at right wing. Yeah. And I think a, a couple things there. Number one, if I'm going to get like give Serginho Dest a little bit of slack for having to change positions and then figure it out, I think it then means Josh Car- uh, Sargent gets that much more credit when yeah. he changes positions and figures it out to score a goal. Uh, so that's one thing. I, I, I'm with you on that one. I would also say I think he will improve that because or his angles, excuse me, because Florian Kohfeldt, uh, Werder Bremen manager, is a good manager, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that's the case, because I think he's going to look at this, the footage from this game, watch that tape and see Sargent get bypassed a couple times by that outlet pass. And I think he's they're going to work on that in training because it's just such an obvious thing that if you can prevent that pass from happening, it is a much different proposition for Werder Bremen in terms of like blocking off options, forcing them long or forcing turnovers higher up the pitch. But either way, you're getting the ball back. You're not letting them build. You're not letting your opponent have any comfort. And I think you have to make that change. You have to make sure that your uh, sort of defensive attacker knows what he needs to be doing and is able to better, more effectively implement the game plan and execute that game plan. So I do think we'll see him more on the right wing, and I very much hope we see him taking better angles, not getting easily bypassed. And I think that will show that Kofeld is adapting what he's doing and that Jeff Sargent is capable of adapting his approach. And this is semi-related to that whole thing, I suppose, but not entirely. I think Josh Sargent's one of his best abilities has always been 
his pressure. Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe not what you want from your number nine or from a U.S. men's national team perspective. That's probably not what you want to be the best skill for your number nine. But I kind of think that's where Josh Sargent is right now. That's his best ability. And we're going to see him continue to build on that for Verde Bremen. And even even looking at the positives for the U.S. men's national team, if we think about how Greg Berhalter wants his team to defend, he wants them to press in a lot of situations. You want that number nine, which is where I think Josh Sargent will be playing for the U.S. men's national team. He might not be the first choice right now, but he's in that depth chart somewhere. You want that player to be Roberto Firmino. That's essentially what Berhalter has built his number nine to be defensively. Someone who presses a lot and covers a lot of ground and does more running maybe than any other player in that front three. Sargent or whoever that number nine is sometimes might be dropping in, sometimes might be pushing high and pressing a center back or pressing a goalkeeper. They need a lot of energy. The U.S. needs a lot of energy and pressing ability out of that player. That, I think, is one of the best things that Sargent provides, and he might bring that skill better than anyone else in the pool right now. He might. And I agree with you that he is uh, probably a number nine in Greg Berhalter's vision right now. And I think that does make sense. I do find myself wondering if he keeps playing right wing, if he gets better on the defensive side, continues to score goals, albeit from maybe a center forward position. But still, if he's playing there and getting minutes there with the injury to Jordan Morris, I did wonder. I did find myself wondering, like, I see some similarities. I don't think the the, the breakaway pace that Morris has is the thing that Josh Sargent has. But I do think there's that physicality in the way he gets back, the way he gets stuck into challenges, and the way he can then quickly transition into counterattacks. I see some possibilities there. I don't know if that's a thing Burhalter will explore. I think you're probably right that he sees him as a number nine and has seen him as a number nine, so why not continue to see him as that? But if we do get him on the right wing, I think it's a sign that Greg Berhalter's watching Werder Bremen and seeing some positive things. I I really hope that doesn't happen, but honestly, it, it is possible. <laughs> it is possible, but I I really, I really hope not. Why is that? Just because you wanted to be the number nine? I just think his his profile fits that spot a lot better. Okay. And mostly even without Jordan Morris, I think the U.S. still has a lot of depth out wide. And maybe they don't yeah. have – they have a lot of depth at number nine, but they don't have a lot of quality at number nine right now. Sargent well is said. one of the players who I think has some quality in him right now. And moving him away from that central attacking spot might do more harm than good. But hey, I, I'm not Greg Berhalter, so who knows? Who knows indeed. Uh, who knows which player we're going to talk about next? The answer is Joe. Joe, oh, who are we yeah. talking about? Oh, yeah. It's Brendan Aronson time. We waited long right. enough after that intro. Brendan Aronson started, scored, and had an assist of sorts. Well, he had an assist, yep. but it was a little strange. In RB Salzburg's 4-1 win over the weekend, Aronson starts as that left attacking midfielder in a 4 triple 2 and and looked good, Taylor. I thought he looked mm-hmm. really good in this game. He he did a few different things that I want to highlight quickly, kind of in rapid fire, and then we can dig into some stuff in more detail in a minute. But sure. he tries things on the ball. He's clever mm-hmm. on the ball. He sees little flicks. He sees little quick passes and little combination moments that a lot of players, even for Salzburg, I think, don't see. He had yep. a really nice flick in the sixth minute to to get the ball to a teammate. He had a really nice one in the 70th minute as well. So I think he's trying things, and Jesse Marsh cultivates an environment where that's okay, where you don't get punished, or you don't get ridiculed for trying to make something happen and trying that quick play. I think that's what Jesse Marsh actually calls it, is quick play, those little combination moments, and Aronson's really good at that. So that's one. Aronson also right now is pressing like a madman. He's everywhere. He's closing down the ball so fast, and that's where his assist comes from. He closes down the ball after he loses it, after he's tried to do something. So again, Marsh doesn't discourage that. Aronson tries something, he loses the ball, he closes the ball down, it, the the pass from the opponent actually ricochets off of him and then falls into Daka's path and he scores in the 17th minute. So Aronson's pressing, he's trying things, and he's also making runs into the box. He's making runs into the box from wide areas and crashing the back post, or coming up through the middle of the field and crashing it in the middle and, and getting to the penalty spot. He's crashing the box like Berhalter wants his central midfielders to do with the U.S. men's national team. And he's also crashing the box like Berhalter wants his wingers to do, which continues to to make me wonder where is this guy going to play for the U.S. men's mm. national team. And I don't know the answer to that question, but Aronson's making that problem uh, a, a good problem for Greg Berhalter with how he's doing right now with RB Salzburg. 
Uh, yeah, I want to focus in on that assist of sorts he gets because you, every, everything you said about it is correct. I just want to kind of double down on for people who haven't seen it. He gets the ball. He drives at the defense again, to your point about trying stuff. And I think has three different defenders collapse upon him. So he sort of loses the ball, but he also gets kind of knocked around a little bit. It's, it's unclear to me who makes the tackle and who makes the physical challenge on him. But either way, he is dispossessed. And then it's that rather than complain or pull his socks up, or slowly get back up. I mean, he really does pop right back up and sprint 10 yards to just apply immediate pressure. So much so that I think uh, the, I forget who it was on the ball for uh, Poulton, but basically just caught completely unaware. And that's where that panic comes from. They go for the panic clearance and he blocks it out. But the way he drives, gets up and just keeps going, he is, he's a little bit of the, uh, the liquid Terminator from the second Terminator movie of just sort of like, he like reforms and then keeps going. And it's, I'm going to assume terrifying, especially when it leads to assists. And then certainly when it leads to goals, which he he does get in that second half. I was trying to think of an analogy for how Aronson gets up, and that was that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for coming in clutch on that one. The T-1000, baby. Aronson's, Aronson's done this stuff dating back to his time with the Union, which wasn't that long ago, right? But he's always been active with his pressing. I think the biggest thing he needs to improve on right now in that regard is pressing, but not over-pressing, if that makes sense. It's kind of the Tyler mm-hmm. Adams problem that we've been talking yep. about for the last couple months almost at this point where Tyler Adams will over-pursue sometimes and then get turned, and then the opposing team can attack right by him. That happened to Aronson, not a lot in this game, but that did happen to Brendan Aronson later on after he has that really great pressing moment that leads to the goal. That that negative side comes out, and so I do think that's something for us to watch going forward. But enough about that. Let's talk about the goal, Taylor, because it is is quite nice. I'll set the scene here. It's the 68th minute. RB Salzburg's left back tries to play a little headed ball out wide to Brendan Aronson, But Poulton's right back gets to that ball first. So Aronson doesn't immediately get on the end of that pass from his Salzburg teammate. But he stays pressing. Again, it's not a long pressing moment. But he does stay aggressive in his pursuit of the ball. So Aronson is breathing right down that opposing player's neck. And then that that uh, that fullback for Poulton plays the ball back. I think to it's the I think it's I can't remember. If it's, I think it's the right center back because they're in a back three as well. I think oh, it's that's uh, right. That's Steinvender. Right. Yes. Oh man, Steinvender. How did I not want to yeah. want to get a chance to say that name? That's beautiful. <laughs> so Bolton have a little bit of a miscue at the back. So they play the ball yeah. back and then they try to play bit. forward, <laughs> and it's it's not pretty. Arby Salzburg get the ball right back. The ball is it, it, the ball. The ball, excuse me, comes to Brendan Aronson, kind of right at the edge of the box, right inside the box. Aronson cuts it onto his right foot, cuts right kind of across the face of a defender and bends it into the the far side of the netting, the far side of the goal, and scores from about 12 yards out. He makes mincemeat out of that center back that's trying to defend him. He starts to play with some good energy, even though he doesn't get on the ball at the beginning of this play. It's a really nice sequence from Aronson and a really nice finish. It is. It is to, it's to kind of like to know that angle. That's that goal scoring ability of knowing I got to cut inside a little bit and then I can bend it in. I know exactly where to place it. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, that made me happy. So too did realizing who, uh, Poulton's goal scorer yeah. was because Salzburg win this four to one. Graham Ruthven said that he's starting to feel like anytime there's just a young player doing anything exciting, like more American. often than not, it's an American. And I was happy to learn that Taylor Booth was the goal scorer, uh, for Poulton in this. This one, obviously, they don't end up winning, but him playing on the kind of right side of that midfield three for them uh, looks fine. Got a goal. So we've got Americans scoring on both sides of the ball, though. I do think Brendan Aronson stood out just a bit more. I'm so here for the American takeover, everybody. It's happening. And Brandon Cervegna on the bench. Wow. And Brandon Cervegna is on the bench. Wow. Yeah, there's, there were okay. three American, four if you count Jesse Marsh, okay. involved in this yeah. game in a real way. I'm so here for it, Taylor. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I have one more thing to say about Brendan Aronson, but it is sort of in relation to, I think, the final player that you're going to talk about, Joe. So I'll hold off for now. But uh, any other things to talk about with Brendan Aronson? Just a closing note after you left us with that tease. I think I think Aronson's in a great spot right now at Salzburg in terms of playing time. Yeah, he's a regular starter at this point, but also positionally, he's in a good spot. He's playing almost every game as yep. either the left. Well, he's playing every game as either the left attacking midfielder or the right attacking midfielder in Jesse Marsh's four two two two, and that allows him to do a little bit of winger things, to do a little bit of central midfielder things, which continues to make that question of where is Berhalter going to play him a real question. But he's getting good reps kind of in positions for both of those spots. And all that leads me to say is that Brendan Aronson is going to be a great depth piece for Berhalter at some point this year at 
maybe four different spots. Left wing, right wing, left central mid, right central mid. He can do a lot of different stuff, and that's going to be a big asset for the U.S. It certainly will. We're going to talk about more Americans in just a moment. First, another word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we've got two Americans left to be discussed, and I'm going to take us to talk about Chris Richards in the Bundesliga, playing at left center back, which has become uh, customary for him in his time with Hoffenheim. In the 3-4-1-2, they get a 2-1 win over Wolfsburg, uh, with John Brooks being very involved for Wolfsburg, especially in the second half as they're chasing the game, trying to get that uh, the equalizer. A lot of John Brooks driving forward with the ball and playing in those diagonals, uh, which were pretty consistently threatening. So, Good work from him, less so from a Wolfsburg defense that see uh, their right back red card at the very end of the game. It's also a Wolfsburg team that have conceded, I believe, the fewest goals in the Bundesliga until this weekend. But now with the two conceded, they are uh, done one better by RB Leipzig. So uh, that's also, I'm going to say to Chris Richards' credit, that he is involved in uh, Wolfsburg losing that that crown that they had. But more relevant to what he actually did was in playing that left center back position. A lot of what you and I have been talking about when it comes to Chris Richards, it is being confident on the ball, but not overly confident. I don't see him trying to hit like 60 yard passes every single time or trying to split four players every single time he can. I saw him hit a few good sort of left to right diagonals on occasion and they uh, more often than not landed on the foot or at the chest of the player he was aiming for. Rarely did they have to go like vertical jump to try to bring the ball down, which did make me happy. And his positioning also made me very happy in terms of knowing when to leave one player to track another one, when to split the difference and sort of limit the attacking options that Wolfsburg did have. I still saw some of the not frustrating things, but some of the things that you and I have kind of spotlighted as being things to keep an eye on. Joe, for people who maybe haven't heard some of those episodes or have missed it, what are some things we've previously been concerned about with Chris Richards? So since Chris Richards has moved to Hoffenheim and we've gotten a better look at what he actually can do on the field, we've pulled out a few different things. Number one for me is his aerial ability or maybe his Mm -hmm. lack of aerial ability. For as athletic of a player as he is and as skilled of a player as he is, he struggles to win balls in the air from what I've seen at least. And we've talked about this before. He doesn't always win those balls as they come to him in the attack or in a defensive sense. So that's, that's number one. And then number two, the really only other thing is... He'll sometimes step aggressively into midfield, yep. and I think he's being told to do that. I think that's that's part of the responsibility that the center backs in Hoffenheim's three four one two shape is that is that what it is or three three one four two? There it is. I think the center backs in that back three are told to step aggressively, especially the light, the left center back and the right center back. So Richards is doing that, but sometimes he doesn't win those balls, and you kind of have to win those balls in midfield. Otherwise, you're going to get turned. They're going to have a 2v1 against that that left wing back for Hoffenheim, and then you're going to be in some trouble. So aerial ability and his ability to win those kind of 50-50 balls, but just win those important balls in midfield are the two biggest things for me right now. So to the aerial uh, aspect of things, I saw him uh, fighting for lots of different uh, like balls over the top. I saw him win some. I saw him lose some, but I did see him uh, contesting. And that's what you want to see is him making it uncomfortable for the opponent and then ideally winning more than his fair share. Still somewhere I think he didn't quite get up forward or maybe took a strange approach angle or just didn't get the leap that he would have liked and lost some of those. So still a thing I would like to see him improve to the stepping at the wrong time or stepping kind of overly aggressive point. I I really think that is a thing that I want to figure out more about when he is supposed to do that for Hoffenheim, because I'm with you that it does seem like there are occasionally moments when he gets it wrong, like you talked about with Dest, where he sort of over pursues and then is caught out. But there are other times when it's this sort of um, 
It's a thing we usually see when uh, a team plays backwards and their opponents who want to press then go kind of pressing out. It makes me so excited I hit my mic, apparently. Uh, but, like, like that's what I see from him is he steps to somebody and if that ball goes backwards, he keeps pursuing the ball. And that is where I'm with you that that feels like a thing he's been told to do is don't just step to the player who has the ball and if he drops it, then you drop back in and get back into your shape. I think there is this idea of keep pursuing, keep making them uncomfortable, even if you don't end up winning the ball, making them sort of play the ball faster than they want to or play it into areas they don't necessarily want the ball to go does seem to be a thing he's being asked to do. And I think with that back three, if he steps out, he obviously has cover behind him. So I'm going to keep an eye or going to plan to be keeping an eye on when he steps out. And if it is one of those sort of like almost like pin uh, pinball things of like he just keeps moving and moving and moving versus maybe steps out and gets turned or something like that. That's the one that I feel like isn't as intentional. I did still see a few of those moments, but for the most part, I saw the the chain reaction press and he seemed to do pretty well with it. And then on the ball, I thought he was just smart. I thought he made good decisions, simple decisions. Sometimes he's playing those interior passes. Sometimes he's playing it wide. Uh, so that distribution was good. That decision-making was good. That's the thing that I've wanted to uh, spotlight in the past, or we've spotlighted in the past, and paying attention to it this time around made me happy. But really, his positioning was the other big one that I thought was was especially solid here. And there were times, because they're in that back three, that there would be overloads, there would be situations in which he has somebody, uh, he has like a, a, a fullback streaking down that right-hand side, but he's got somebody on the ball more uh, like internally, and he does a really good job of making that pass look on, but never making it look completely on, but never letting the ball carrier feel like they've got time and space to make decisions. I kept seeing him sort of jump off of one player at the exact right moment to pick up somebody else when the ball, like before the ball is passed to them so that by the time they receive it, he's there and he's already on them. And I think those rotations, those patterns are starting to come more readily, and you're starting to see him be able to sort of know what's coming, uh, intuit what's coming, and step to it at the right moment and make plays that I think he probably doesn't make a couple of weeks ago. Now I think he's starting to do a better job of that defensively, and that's certainly what you want when it comes to a center back. It looks to me like his positioning is good, and it also yep. looks to me like he has the acceleration and the physical ability mm -hmm. to really make the attacking team pay with his positioning. Because I can go out there on the soccer field right now for Hoffenheim, and I could have good positioning. I'm not saying I would, but I could. But even if my positioning was spot on, I, I wouldn't have the speed to get to the ball and close down the ball and do the things, the rest of the things that you need to do as a center back. Chris Richards has both of the pieces of the puzzle. He has the athletic ability and that quick first step and that good acceleration to switch, to switch from the opposing fullback to the winger, whatever the situation is. He can, he can almost contain multiple players at once or at least nail the timing of where to go. Because he knows where to go and because he has that ability to accelerate back and forth and close down the ball and close down angles. I love the fact that he has both of those tools in his back pocket. Yeah. Oh, it makes me happy. We've got center backs. It was cool to see uh, like uh, a potential center back pairing for the U.S. Uh, playing on opposite sides of the field. Uh, so I think the final thing that I'll note with Chris Richards uh, in my notes, I'm literally writing it down to keep an eye on for the future, is just the gambling on those interceptions, on when he does sort of roll the dice on stepping out, because I think there are probably times that it, it is okay and he is being encouraged to do that. I do also think there are times when he is do it like like uh Jurgen Klopp has talked about this with his system that what you cannot afford is for if you're going to press you can't dive in and get beaten because if you're bypassed and everybody's pressing you have removed yourself from the equation but now somebody else has to abandon their responsibility to slow down the player that you you've let get by you which opens up a player that somebody else then has to step to and it's a chain reaction that doesn't necessarily work well and I do wonder if there are moments when he's being told yeah go ahead back yourself make that play and if you don't we've got cover Versus there are times when he is just trying to make that play and it's not coming off and he leaves his team more exposed. So seeing how he like continues to figure that out, if he continues to figure that out, like if he keeps just gambling and there's never any repercussions, then I think we can safely say it's a thing that his manager is OK with him doing. If we do start to hear him getting shouted at because we're behind closed doors and we can hear those things, uh, then maybe we know that he is rolling the dice a bit too often in a way that his manager does not love. Uh, but that aside, I thought it was a very strong weekend for Chris Richards and obviously for Hoffenheim, who get that two to one win over Wolfsburg. I really hope we see Chris Richards start for the U.S. men's national team in March. In one or both of those friendlies, 
Northern Ireland and Jamaica, I believe, are the two games that the U.S. is going to be playing. Uh, he's he's earned it, or uh, that's a bad way to say it, because I don't think that club form always informs who starts in national mm-hmm. team games. But I'll say it this way. He's had one of the best three-month stretches or two-month stretches uh, you know, in, yeah. of, of anyone in the entire pool right now. And if that does carry any weight for Greg Berhalter, if that's going to help him transition and play well in a short camp leading up to those friendlies, Chris Richards should be in a pretty good spot for those those March games. Because even if he's not a guaranteed starter coming in, and I agree with everything you said, if he's coming into camp and has had the match experience he's had, he's in training every week with the first team in Hoffenheim, he's getting minutes in the Bundesliga, he's getting consistent starts in the Bundesliga, you would assume that if he is even just brought in to see how he's advanced, to see what developments there have been in his game... Greg Berhalter has to, I would hope, be impressed by what he does see in training. I'm assuming he will be is a better way to put that. And I do think you're right then that maybe that enhances the chances we see him start. So even if he's being brought into camp just to see where he is, I think that his level will have improved such that maybe he does jump ahead of a few people. Don't know if he starts. I hope he starts. But I don't want to like set people up to be then angry if Chris Richards isn't starting. But it yeah. sounds like you, Joe, might be a little bit frustrated if he doesn't. Yeah, I just I really hope that happens because I think he's – oh, I want to say it so bad. I think he <laughs> he might be – I'm not going to say it. But he's a, he's a good player. He's a good player and one of the better center backs in the pool. All right, let's talk about our final player of the weekend then. Joseph, who are we talking about? Where are we going? What country are we heading to? It's Luca De La Torre time. Okay. I don't think anyone was expecting me to say that unless I put nope. it in the title or the show notes, which I might do. Who knows? But uh, it's kind of a blast in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Luca De La Torre started and scored the game winner for Heracles in their 2-1 win over, is it PEC Zwolle or, or PEC Zwolle in the Eredivisie? Do you know? Do you know, Taylor? I, f- I have a vague inclination that it's Peck, but I do not know. And even then, I don't know if it's like Petch, but okay. uh, yeah, I'll go Peck's Vole. Okay, yeah. we'll go, we'll just go Zvole then for the sake sure. of this conversation. Uh, that's, that's former U17, former U20 World Cup veteran for the United States. He also has one cap, Taylor, for the full men's national team. It happened back in the dark ages in the Dave Sarakin era in 2018 against the Republic of Ireland. He came off the bench in that friendly. That was right around the time of the France game. That the U.S. drew France, I believe, right before the the mm-hmm. 2018 World Cup that France would go yep. on to win. Uh, that was a fun time. I'm being sarcastic. That was not a fun time. <laughs> but, I mean, it was it was good for Luca De La Torre because he got that first cap with the men's national team. He's pushing for another cap, Taylor. A couple years, a few years removed from his last appearance with the U.S. He is looking to get back into the fold. I read a piece from Brian Sharetta that said, quote, The San Diego native recently gave an interview with the club's official website, that's Heracles' official website, where he said he felt he deserved a call-up to the U.S. men's national team. And so I I read that, and I said, okay, Luca De La Torre, let's see what you've got. Let's see if if kind of I'm on the same page after watching that film. And he did some good things. He did some things that I said, ooh, okay. And he also did some things that I said, oh, Mm -hmm. that's that's maybe why you haven't been a regular call-up. And this is... Kind of harsh. I'm not trying to take shots at Luca De La Torre here. But, Taylor, I know you watched some film as well on this guy. I did. It was a nice little blast from the past. I liked some things. I didn't like some things. I just said all that. I'm going to stop talking. What did you think of Luca De La Torre in this game? Um, I want to take it broader first just to say that I the game itself sort of confused me because it's 10th place Heracles, uh, 12th, place, uh, 12th place Zvola. But both teams seemed like they were sort of mutually okay with losing possession. I kept seeing heavy touches, bad passes, individual mistakes. I didn't see as many of those from Luca De La Torre, I should emphasize. But I, I like I think I'm just... Painting that picture because so much of this game felt like it was like, okay, they're on the ball and they're moving it and he passed it straight to an opponent and now they're counting. Oh, no, but now he passed it to, and it really was hard to kind of figure out what the rhythm was here or how strong either of these teams necessarily was. Because to your point, I too saw good moments from Luca de la Torre and I saw him demanding the ball and wanting to have possession and wanting to almost be like the point guard for Heracles. But then I couldn't tell if that was because he has like elevated his status and is and is so good in this team in a very good team or if he is the dominant player in an okay team who maybe aren't as adept technically and so he stands out in that way for that reason it's really hard to say and i don't know what the right answer is because we just don't have enough context in this situation but i'm with you taylor and i want to focus on some of the things he did well with the ball because i thought Relative to the rest of the players on the field, at least, he did do a pretty good job of making things happen when he had the ball. 
Uh, I want to give a little scouting report that kind of talks about his offensive ability because it had been a long time since I'd seen him play. Listeners, I assume that goes for you guys as well. Maybe somebody's out there watching him every week, in which case props to you. But he's right Can I just Can I just interject to Please. say for people who don't know, uh, we are still talking about a 22-year-old, <laughs> which is like, it's. I think we're making him sound like he's like 30. Right. <laughs> or yeah. it's like he's been wandering for 28 or 20, like and now he's 28, 29. And oh, he's back. Yeah, 22 turns 23 in May, I think. So still plenty of time for him. Just wanted to kind of, again, set that scene as well. No, that's, that's helpful information. I kind of skipped over that. It does feel like he is a lot older than he is which i blame on 2020 and the rest of the insanity that's been going on but Fair. scouting report wise from what i saw of luca de la torre in this game and what i've seen in the past he's right-footed but he's a capable passer with both feet so he can play some left-footed balls out to the wing he can connect play with both feet he's not a number 10 and he was playing as kind of a, a number eight in this game from what i could tell sometimes dropping deeper and looking almost like a six but he's not a number 10 in that he doesn't really play through balls in behind and doesn't try to feed his attackers for shots. He's not a key pass guy. He's more of just a simple ball progressor connector kind of player, connecting play and moving moving it forward and getting the ball to the feet of attackers, but then letting them kind of go to work and letting the attacking players combine and get into the box and actually create the final moments before a shot. So De La Torre is not a 10, he's more of an 8. And and defensively, he's not super athletic. Taylor, I don't know if you noticed this. He didn't look out of place athletically, but he definitely didn't stand out in a, wow, Luca De La Torre is buzzing around the field kind of way. In fact, yeah, I'd agree. most of the moments that I did pinpoint from an athletic standpoint on Luca De La Torre were negative moments. I picked one specifically in the 71st minute. He's kind of defending zone 14, defending that central area right on top of his team's box. And... And Zuele is attacking, and Luca De La Torre just gets kind of one-twoed right around him in that zone, and it leads to a shot. And you kind of can't have that if you're Heracles. You kind of can't have that if you're De La Torre. And so I do think his athleticism does hold him back, and I think that would probably get exposed a little bit more in a non-Eredivisie league. But I yep. I really did enjoy a lot of what I saw from him offensively with little one-touch passing, little line-breaking balls into a striker dropping in or into a winger who's tucked inside or whatever the situation is. I like the offensive side, but the defensive side and his maybe lack of athleticism, mm-hmm. I think, is holding it back to some degree. Yeah, like, and, and that moment maybe would stand out more if it weren't that, like, both teams seem to have embraced the NBA all-star model of defense of like, yeah, maybe we'll try. We'll see what happens. That was, that's good. That was a, a curious approach. Yeah. But I, I am also with you though that again, it's that, it's that I don't know how much stock to put in this because there are moments when I feel like under, Harsher situations with better opponents, is he is able to do what he did? The one that stood out for me was in the 29th minute. Um, they, uh, Heracles get the ball back. Uh, they, they recover the ball and it's basically played into him. He is more central and he does a good job of, of turning quickly, moving the ball forward diagonally and he, and he switches the point of attack. He plays in one of his teammates and, and it's very, it's, it's very quick and decisive. And that did make me happy. It's only a few touches between like the ball going into him and it's basically like a touched, he like turns it with that first touch, takes another touch and then plays the, the player in. And that's very good. But then to the, the kind of teaser I dropped earlier, you contrast that with Brendan Aronson, who does that, but has a player on his back, turns that player, then drives at the defense, pulls out two defenders, then plays a teammate in. It's a slightly overhit pass, but he's also like being fouled as he plays it. And that sort of juxtaposition really stood out to me because I was trying to figure out was that a really good play from Luca De La Torre? Was that smart vision? Is that a thing that we'll need a central midfielder to do for the U.S.? And it probably is of check into space, receive the ball, turn quickly, play it into space, move the attack forward. But then watching Brendan Aronson do it under pressure in tighter circumstances and creating even more, it, it, it I think that is why it stood out to me that much more. And so while I'm excited to see Luca De, De La Torre doing things, starting in the Eredivisie, getting minutes, scoring goals... I still think he's got a little ways to go before he is in that same conversation for, yeah, get him in that camp, get him in that midfield. We need other options there. It doesn't seem like he's knocking any of the like more accepted starters out of any of their spots and even some of the backups. Is he better than Brendan Aronson right now? Does he start over Brendan Aronson? Does he look better than Brendan Aronson in camp? Maybe that's a, a thing we won't know until they're both in camp together, but I do think we're more likely to see Brendan Aronson than Luca De La Torre at this point. 
Brendan Aronson plays like he's going 55 in a 45, and Luca yep. De La Torre kind of plays like he's going 40 in a 45. Yep. Yep. It's yeah. it's a it's a noticeable difference. It's a difference that would be noticed by a policeman who's going to pull you over, right? It's mm-hmm. it is stark, and I watch these players back to back and notice similar things about the differences yeah. in their speed of play. I think Luca De La Torre is a depth option, and nothing more right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need the Reggie Cannons. We need the Luca De La Torres if he actually is in Berhalter's plans. We don't know for sure. I read a report that he is being watched. Maybe it was a quote from De La Torre. I can't remember that. Apparently, U.S. soccer is watching him. Mm-hmm. It seems like he could feature at some point in this busy 2021 for the U.S. men's national yeah. team. But I don't think there's any reason for us to expect anything more from him right now. I think that's a perfectly reasonable place to be on Luca De La Torre, who does have one of the most fun names to say in the entire pool. That is true. Dad. That is true. It's him and Benicio Del Toro. Oh, are, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Are neck and neck for that one. Uh, but for now, Joe, anything else to say about Luca De La Torre or any other uh, Americans, young or old, playing abroad? I, man, I wish I had something on a, on a particularly old American playing abroad <laughs> or someone who's, who's kind of slipped under the radar. But no, I am through. Thank you. I was, I was just making sure that, yes, like they are all, I, I think <laughs> there's a chance that Luca De La Torre is the oldest player that we talked about today. I just wanted to make sure that was the case yeah, before uh, yep. I called it a day. Wow. All right, then. Good times. <laughs> That's crazy. Good times man. to be an American fan. Yeah. 23-year-old is the, uh, not yet a 23-year-old, is the crafty veteran when it comes to the six players we discussed. Joe, uh, I know you and I will be back later on in the week with Ryan Bailey to break down this week's Champions League matches, but I know you and Jordan also uh, have an MLS Assist episode out, a new MLS Assist episode, I should add. Oh, yeah. We talked, and I guess we answered listener questions our listeners really brought it, and I'm guessing the the circle, the Venn diagram of TSS listeners and MLS Assist listeners is probably a circle. So I'm just <laughs> going to say the listeners really brought it, and they asked some awesome questions. We had one about should Vlako Andonovsky use Crystal Dunn like Bob Bradley uses Latif Blessing. We had one about Freddie Montero, who's back in Seattle. Just really awesome questions that we had a blast answering. It was a good time. I would venture to guess that you have some listeners we do not, since there are many people who just want to hear about Major League Soccer, and we do not always Fair. just discuss Major League Soccer. So go check out MLS Assist, get those answers to those cues. But for now, Joe, uh, anything else before we call it a day? Man, I don't think so. Taylor, thank you. You you always kind of end episodes that you host by you know thanking the guest. I want to uh, usurp, usurp. <laughs> I actually don't know how to say that word. I want to yeah, take whatever. control and say thank you for uh, for letting me come on and talk about all these American <laughs> players with you. My pleasure, my friend. Listeners, thank you all for listening. I will still thank you all. Um, (laughs) We will talk to you all again very soon. (laughs) 